from the WJFF Studios in Liberty, New York, this is Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. On today's show, Ukraine, local reaction to the Russian invasion one year later. Today, we hear excerpts from a vigil held last night in the local Ukrainian enclave of Glen Spey, and we speak with local Ukrainian-American Dr. Larissa Dierska about her family still in Ukraine and how the war has upended their lives. Solar subsidies amid rising electricity and home energy costs across the country. The federal government makes installing solar panels and storage batteries a more attractive investment for many homeowners than it even was a couple of years ago. We chat with Larry Rieger, Director of Sustainability at SUNY Sullivan. Plus, plastics and climate change. We preview this afternoon's Artist Talk at the Delaware Valley Arts Alliance. But first, the news from NPR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Luis Schiavone. The European Union has approved its 10th round of sanctions on Moscow for its war on Ukraine. From Brussels, Terry Schultz reports that for the first time, entities linked to Iran's Revolutionary Guard Council are included because they're believed to be supplying weapons to Russia. The European Commission, the EU's executive arm, says it's turning up the pressure on Russian President Vladimir Putin for what it calls his brutal war, viciously targeting civilians and critical infrastructure in Ukraine. The measures will block some 11 billion euros worth of industrial goods from being exported to Russia, items such as spare parts for trucks, jet engines, antennas and cranes, which the EU hopes will degrade Moscow's military capabilities. It will place visa bans and asset freezes on more than 120 Russian individuals and entities, including army commanders politicians, and those believed to be responsible for propaganda and for the forced deportation of thousands of Ukrainian children. Seven Iranian entities are included for supplying drones to Russian forces. For NPR News, I'm Terry Schultz in Brussels. There will not be a joint communique from the meeting of the group of 20 finance ministers and central banks chiefs who gathered in Bangalore, India. The U.S. and its allies and the group of seven industrial powers were adamant in demanding the communique squarely con- condemn Russia for its invasion of Ukraine. Russia and China oppose the effort. Blizzard warnings are in effect for the mountainous parts of the Los Angeles County area with several feet of snow forecast. Just one part of an unusual weather pattern hitting the nation. NPR's Amy Held has details. It's mostly heavy rain in L.A. now under a flood watch, but it was the rare flurries Friday that delighted, including the incongruous sight of snow around the Hollywood sign. Part of a major interstate known as the Grapevine in Southern California remained shut Saturday for snow as plows worked to clear it. The snow and winds are moving eastward, reaching the middle part of the country in the coming days. In Michigan, hundreds of thousands of people are still without power after earlier snow and ice. But at the same time, parts of the East Coast basked in record highs. Washington hit 81 degrees on Thursday. Amy Held, NPR News. Citing chatter among hate groups, law enforcement officials are asking Jewish communities to remain vigilant this weekend. NPR's Dave Mistich reports officials say that hate groups have been trying to organize anti-Semitic activities. Officials say extremist groups posted on social media calling for the vandalization of property and the distribution of anti-Semitic banners, flyers, and stickers. Law enforcement in some major cities say they have not identified any specific threats, but would step up patrols near houses of worship out of an abundance of caution. The Anti-Defamation League says harassment and violence targeting Jewish people hit a record high in 2021. NPR's Dave Mistich. This is NPR News in Washington. The Biden administration is poised to reinstitute a requirement that medication for attention deficit disorder or for addictive painkillers only be available after the patient sees a doctor in person. Currently, millions of Americans are able to get some prescriptions through telehealth doctor appointments via computer or phone, a product of the pandemic. The Drug Enforcement Administration says it plans to reinstate the once longstanding federal requirement. New data out this week shows the backlog of asylum applications in Britain is now more than 160,000, the largest number since records began. As Villa Marx reports, that represents a challenge to Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. The data from Britain's Interior Ministry showed around 161,000 asylum seekers were waiting for an initial decision on their claim at the end of 2022. It was a significant increase from the previous year after tens of thousands of individuals braved the dangerous crossing from northern France in small boats. 
The vast majority of them, nearly 110,000, have waited more than six months for a decision while housed in temporary accommodation, including hotels, that are now increasingly subject to violent threats from far-right groups. In a bid to clear the bureaucratic delays that have long bedeviled the approval process, authorities have announced they will skip face-to-face interviews for some 12,000 applicants from several countries, including Yemen and Eritrea. For NPR News, I'm Willem Marks. An earthquake with a magnitude of six hit off the eastern part of Japan's northern island of Hokkaido today. No tsunami warning was issued. The quake hit off the Nimuro Peninsula at a depth of 38 miles. I'm Louise Schiavone, NPR News, Washington. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at BetterHelp.com public. This is Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. Yesterday marked the first anniversary of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Commemorations have been held in Ukraine and around the world with moments of silence observed, candlelight vigils and protests. Yesterday, the Ukrainians of Glen Spey, New York, held a community vigil to mark the one-year anniversary. Here's Sullivan County legislator Nadia Reich speaking at that vigil last night. I have a pin that was given to me by a friend. The pin says, in a world of Putin's, via Zelensky. I do want to welcome everybody here today and start by saying 365 days. Hard to believe that we were here last year at this time for a rally when the war had originally started on February 24th, 22. 365 days of an unwanted and unnecessary terror death and destruction in Ukraine. Putin's objective was to take Ukraine in just a few days. He failed in his primary objective, which was to conquer Ukraine and end its existence as an independent country. He wants to absorb it into Russia. Last night, we held a prayer vigil. Thank you to Diana, Roman, Cindy, and Ula for putting this together. The prayer vigil was live-streamed from the Ukrainian Orthodox Diocese in South Bombrook. Prior to the prayer vigil, there was a cultural event by Ukrainian schoolchildren who performed dances, songs, and recited poems in Ukrainian. Regardless of how much Putin wants to wipe out the Ukrainian culture, he wants to wipe out tradition, language, and religion in Ukraine. The diaspora around the world will continue to teach their children these traditions, customs, and cultures, and language. We will never cease to exist as a people because of Putin's war and genocide. We are Ukrainian. Ukraine is stronger and more resistant than that. Ninety years ago, Stalin attempted a similar act for Ukrainians. Stalin used food as a weapon and forcibly starved over 10 million Ukrainians, men, women, and children. It is estimated that 28,000 people died each day. At exactly 9 p.m. last night, the prayer service began for Ukraine. And this was for the victims of the war. 9 p.m. our time is 4 a.m. in Ukraine. That's the exact time that Russia sent missiles into Ukraine last year. Unknowingly, these people were sleeping and they were being bombed by missiles. This was the beginning of Putin's genocidal war, which has lasted 365 days with unimaginable torture, rape, killing of civilians and abduction of children, bombing and destruction of homes, businesses, schools and hospitals. I am a first generation Ukrainian American. Both my parents immigrated from Ukraine during World War II, looking for a better life and a place to raise a family. They were displaced by the war, just like the 8.5 million Ukrainians are displaced today. Most of the Ukrainians here are either directly from Ukraine or first generation as a result of World War II. 
Many of us still have family and friends in Ukraine whom we worry about, especially their health and their safety. Over the last year, tens of thousands of Ukrainian men, women, and children have been killed. More than 13 million have been uprooted from their homes. These people did not have a choice but to leave their homes, husbands, and families. Like my parents, they are displaced by a war started by a madman. We have a few families with us today which have recently come from Ukraine. We welcome them into our community. The new family there, welcome. Yuri, where are you? Welcome. No, welcome. If you are here, we welcome you. Last week, I had the opportunity to speak with our newly elected congressman, Marcus Molinaro, representing CD19, and I asked him to support Ukraine as well as to join the Ukrainian caucus. I also expressed my concerns regarding a bill that may be presented by Matt Goetz, a bill proposing to stop all aid to Ukraine. Matt Goetz and his cronies in Washington must understand the importance of supporting Ukraine and its fight for freedom and democracy. Ukraine is fighting a war for all of us. If it fails to win, other European countries may be at risk from Russian invasion. We must continue to support Ukraine. We cannot abandon it now. If we do, we will abandon the principles that make all countries safe and secure. For this war to end, Ukraine needs the requested military equipment. Russia must get out of Ukraine, give back all of the lands, bring back all of our children, and be tried for war crimes. To date, an exact number of children abducted is not known, but estimated to be over 14,000. These children are adopted into Russian families or trafficked, which is even more horrendous. These crimes committed by Russia must end. I have a printout here of uh, Russia committing genocide against the children of Ukraine. Here it's about 13.8 thousand kidnapped children, 454 killed, 894 children injured, 4.5 million children traumatized. This is creating PTSD to the extreme. What we have to do is shine a light on these war crimes and hold Putin accountable. The forcible transfer of children of one country to another with intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethical, ethnical or religious group is a war crime. The forcible transfer of large number of a nation's children is genocide. Just like in 1932-33, where Stalin was creating a genocide, this is yet another genocide. It must stop. Sullivan County legislator Nadia Reich speaking at a community vigil for Ukraine last night in Glens Bay. Thanks to Derek Kirk and our partners at the Sullivan County Democrat for that audio. One year ago, right after Russian's invasion, WJFF's Patricia Rabayo spoke with local Ukrainian-American Dr. Larissa Dirska about her friends and family living in Ukraine. Now, a year later, Patricio checked in with Dr. Dirska about how her loved ones are faring amid the fighting and how she's approaching this anniversary. Uh, with sadness, this should never have happened. Ukraine should never have been invaded. So I don't consider this an anniversary, which in you know normal people consider an anniversary as something to celebrate and this this is not a celebration thank god that uh, ukraine still exists that the russians have not been successful so that that is the positive side of all of this and and we're grateful for that we're grateful for that our country um, the united states has stepped in so determinedly and so bravely, President Biden just exemplified by coming on a, on a surprise visit to Kyiv just the other day. Um, I think that lifted the spirits of the Ukrainian people greatly. But this is more akin to a remembrance, a memorial. Um, this is more like a solemn occasion thinking about uh, a genocide. 
the way you would remember the whole of the Maud, which is when events that occurred in 1932 and 33, when several million Ukrainians, mostly on the eastern side of Ukraine, were exterminated, were killed. Genocide was the word that best describes it. It's, it was a starvation by hunger. It's called Holodomor. In Ukrainian, Holod means famine and starvation. They created an artificial famine, and the uh, Ukrainian people died by the millions. So those are the kinds of things that we think about when we think about this, this day, the tragedies that have befallen Ukraine in the, under the um, pretense of, of Russia's imperialistic uh, endeavors. The last time we spoke a year ago about the Ukrainian war, you, talk, you talked about your friends and family back in Ukraine. How is everyone doing? Is everyone okay? Can you give us an update? Well, I had mentioned then that uh, we had lost back in the very beginning of this invasion, which was in 2014. We had lost my cousin. His his dedication to Ukraine was without question. Um, he was an American like me. We were born in the United States in New York City, and uh, our parents, though, were from Ukraine, had uh, escaped another Soviet um, invasion, which was the second coming of the Soviets during the Second World War, occupying the this time the western part of Ukraine, which is where my family is from. And they escaped in the during the night, just packing up what they possibly could carry and left so as to save their lives. This was um, something that, you know, we remember uh, our parents told us about. We were brought up, we were raised in the United States and we're so grateful for having all of the opportunities that the United States provided for us compared to the families that that were left behind. Um, they didn't have it so so easy. They lived under Soviet regime for decades, and only in 1991, when Ukraine declared independence, were they able to freely travel and uh, come and visit us. So we've been in touch with those family members. Fortunately, most of our family lives in the western part of Ukraine, so they have been impacted less than the people in Kyiv and East. But they haven't escaped all the bombs. As you know, there have been there have been bombs that uh, have been missiles that have been sent by Russia from the from the sea, from the from Crimea, even flying over Moldova recently, uh, which which uh, was a, an incursion on their airspace. So they really have no qualms about um, wreaking havoc and uh, causing a lot of people's minds to be discomfort discomforted by what uh, their their um, erratic attacks produce we have uh, one of my cousin's good friends we had um, his pseudonym was Meister he was a person that had signed up for the Donbass battalion as a volunteer same as my cousin back in 2014. And when the incursion happened again on Ukrainian territory, on the sovereign uh, Ukrainian country, he rejoined and he was killed on the Eastern Front um, just recently. So sorry to hear that. There was the journalist who who wrote uh, about my cousin and whom we met at his funeral, at my cousin's memorial, when we visited Kyiv numerous times, we saw him and met him. Um, and he he was assassinated when he went to do a story north of Kyiv. So we've lost people that we know. And I think everybody in Ukraine by now has lost somebody that they know. Uh, and even people like us who are in the safety of, of our own land here in the United States, we're safe. But I think everybody has somebody that they've lost, certainly displaced. So many of our relatives have had to move out of the country temporarily. They all want to come back, but they have had to move for safety reasons out of Ukraine. So, you know, the men are staying because they're fighting. The women and children, the elderly have, have taken a, a, up the offer of 
countries neighboring uh, Ukraine to shelter them, to harbor them from from this danger. So, you know, that's another, that's something else to be grateful for. So we we appreciate all of the goodness, the, the humanity that has been shown during this really difficult time for Ukrainians. But the genocide, the extermination, the erratic behavior of the Russians is really quite a mental case. A lot of Russians have left. I would say probably you can call them the good Russians. But um, there's still probably some Russians who cannot escape. And that makes it very difficult. I'm sure it's difficult for, for them to live. But they have, they must, they must feel what is happening in Ukraine. They must have also lost people who have been sent to the front by the Russian government. So the Russian government, I have no good words for. The Russian people, I'm still holding out some hope that they will be able to gather the courage and, and uh, do something to take care of this government, to to remove this government from power. The last we spoke, we also mentioned your son who is on his way to the Ukraine to help out. He's also a doctor. Can you give us an update on him and make sure he's okay? And, and, and how did it go in his efforts to provide some aid to uh, Ukraine? Yes, he, uh, he did go. Um, and he spent a week uh, exploring the needs of the uh, Ukrainian um, hospitals and and the uh, French clinic, military hospital. Um, and then there was a fundraiser in June that um, at the Ukrainian Institute, a lot of um, money was raised for Ukrainian military hospitals and, and for medical aid. And he's planning on going again soon. And we're glad he's doing okay. You mentioned a little bit about the community here in Sullivan County. How do you think the conflict in Ukraine has affected the Ukrainian-American community here in Sullivan County, in your opinion? There have been fundraisers that um, Ukrainians have been holding, Ukrainian-Americans. Actually, some of them are Ukrainian. Uh, um, the community in Glens Bay is hosting a family from Ukraine. Um, the community at uh, one of the churches, some people call them pierogies um, or vareniki, and they sell them and uh, they raise funds that way. So it has brought the community together, but, you know, that that is not that's not something that uh, you aspire to. The community was strong to begin with because the culture ties it together. Ukraine Ukraine has a very rich culture. The language is unique, definitely different from Russian, uh, just like it's different from Polish. Nobody would try to say that Polish and Ukrainian are the same. And same thing, the Russian language is very different from the Ukrainian language. Ukrainian poets has been very prolific. Ukrainian art, music, my goodness, you might have heard some con concerts, musicians performing, it, uh, even at the Metropolitan um, uh, Opera. Gosh. It's really hard to uh, capture everything that the Ukrainian community has really been uh, what that the Ukrainian community has produced and but is sharing now with every with people so um the concerts at Carnegie Hall at the Metropolitan Opera starting their their uh performances with the Ukrainian national anthem you know that's quite moving it certainly is what is your outlook on the future of this conflict in Ukraine Ukraine will win because the Ukrainian people are just hope. They are full of hope. They are full of determination. I don't know if I've ever seen people like this. They're fighting for their land and for their survival. And they love their country. Um, I, we've seen that numerous times. I think that was one of the things that my cousin, uh, my cousin Mark Poslowski, who died in Ukraine for Ukraine, when he first went to Ukraine, you know, he was a West Point graduate. He was a he was someone who at Ukraine from the business viewpoint. Then um, in the beginning in 1991, when he arrived there, it was not in great shape because it was still under the influence or 
trying to trying to burrow out of the uh, grip of the Soviet system. Uh, of course, in, in economically, you know, when he the way he was looking at it, it, it was in bad shape, and there was a lot of corruption in the very beginning. But generations have now passed, and people have learned. They have had exposure to the West. You know, the the true character of the people have, that is not suppressed by the Russians has come out, and this is what the people really are like. The ones that uh, he had come to know, and he was just so enamored of these people. And so so were we, by extension, hearing from him and then coming to, uh, going to visit him. And then, of course, shortly after he died for the memorials and the funerals, getting to know these people so much better. We know what good people they are. So we know that they're tireless and they're determined and they want their country to be free. They don't want to live under so, under the yoke of the Russians. You know, in the past, Soviets, in the past, imperialist Russia, uh, czarist Russia, all of those entities have wanted to suppress Ukraine. They were never successful then. They will not be successful now. It might take some a little bit more time, but thank goodness for the help of the United States primarily and other countries, they will succeed. And for them to succeed, for this conflict to end. What actions do you think have to be taken to end the conflict? Ukraine has to be given all of the means to win. They will take up the arms, but give them the arms that they need. They actually should have a no-fly zone or a zone where they can defend their airspace. This is not possible right now because they don't have enough air power. They need those F-16s. They need even the older planes that the United States is, is retiring, we do have a fleet of those. Give the Ukrainians those planes so that they can defend themselves. An air dome would be great, as Israel has, and more defensive weapons. They missiles um, uh, and ammunition. Uh, these people are going through them quite a bit. They're they're using them. What what the United States has given them, they're using and using well defending their country, but they need more. So please be supportive, everybody, of aid that uh, the United States is giving to to Ukraine. We were talking to Dr. Larissa Drista from Sullivan County, letting us know about her thoughts, her views on what's happening in the Ukraine conflict. Thank you so much for joining us on the program. I do really appreciate it. Thank you for telling your story. Thank you for letting us know What's happening with your friends and family back in Ukraine? Thanks, Patricio. Yeah. Really appreciate it. Thanks to Patricia Rabio for that report. We'll take a short break, and when we come back, navigating the options for solar energy. This is Radio Chat Skill. This week on Notes from America, how can we read history from a totally new perspective? So we think about these representative figures, these notable figures. So how does one write an account of a nameless figure? I'm Kai Wright. Join me for a conversation with cultural historian Saidia Hartman. Sunday evening at 6, live on Radio Catskill. Every day, Radio Catskill has local news and conversations on air. But did you know we have even more local programming on our Radio Catskill podcasts? Like our travel podcast, Borders, with Ron Bernthal. And voices from the community like Chief Brian Soller's local volunteer firefighter podcast, The Professional Brotherhood. Radio Catskill podcasts at WJFFradio.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Radio Catskill. Listen local. This is Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. The Inflation Reduction Act passed last year contains a residential clean energy credit that allows homeowners to subtract 30% of the cost of installing solar heating, electricity generation, and other solar home products from their federal taxes. The credit is a reboot of an older, less valuable federal tax credit and will be available to taxpayers for more than a decade. That means homeowners considering solar installations have plenty of time to consider their options. Radio Catskill's Rosie Starr spoke with Larry Rieger, the Director of Sustainability at SUNY Sullivan, about where to start with solar. If a, a resident of New York, Sullivan County, or, or beyond 
is thinking about going and adopting solar, you want to really just start with some really, really basic things. How does the average person, the average family, end up with a solar system on their home, maybe their first home or their second home? You know, how much are you paying for electric currently? Most homeowners, I've found, do not actually understand their electric bill. And so educate yourself is really where you start with uh, as far as going with a, a new solar system or considering a solar system. And so learning to read your electric bill. And, and there's a lot of talk about how much are you paying for your electricity as far as generation goes and picking a generator that, that might supply your electricity. Um, currently, most of you or all of you that are connected to the grid have what's called a generation, a transmission, and a distribution charge. And you have to put all three of those charges together to figure out what you're paying for electric. And most homeowners in the state of New York uh, are, are paying between probably between $0.17 cents and $0.25 cents per kilowatt hour. And so everything I'm talking about today is more really talking about per kilowatt hour or watts, and I'm not really talking about dollars and cents. Um, ultimately, we do care about that, but um, when you're talking about solar energy, you're talking about um, what are you paying for electricity, and is this something you can afford to do as you, as you transition towards a, an array? When you start, you figure out how much electricity you're actually using per year, over the entire year, and you also learn how much you're paying for that electricity. But then the very next thing you've got to start thinking about is, you know, as far as educating yourself, is do you want a grid-tied solar system, a solar electric system? Do you want a grid-tied with battery backup or an off-grid system? And so a grid-tied system is what most all homeowners go with. It's the most affordable, lasts the longest, and requires the least maintenance. So grid-tied means you're connected to the grid, and it just happens naturally, and you don't really have to do anything to get your electricity. You create power during the day. If no one's home, that power goes out into the community, and at night you kind of get the electric back in. You don't have no, there's no batteries in a grid-tied system. The second type of system is called a grid-tied with battery backup, and some families might want a little bit of backup. Maybe they're concerned about the lights going out or power going out. That's called a grid-tied with battery backup. That is a more expensive system, and that's compared to maybe a home that's grid-tied with a generator. Maybe it's a gas generator or propane generator. That would be a similar type system. And the last type of solar electric system is off-grid. And so oftentimes people say, oh, I want to go solar, and they're thinking about going off-grid. That's the most expensive type of solar system. That means you have PV modules, which are also sometimes referred to as solar panels, on your roof or in your yard, and you have batteries. And those batteries can be quite costly. And so educating yourself, understanding if you are looking for a grid-tied, grid-tied with battery backup or off-grid, it's really where you start. That's very understandable. And I guess you have to factor in also the increase in electrical cost right now. There's a lot of awareness that the power prices are going up. How do you figure out what system? What's the best way to come to that conclusion? Great question, Rosie. The number one thing you should do after you have some idea of what kind of system you want and you've already looked at your electric bill, is figure out how you can reduce your energy usage. You don't want to install a, a renewable energy system. Maybe your system might cost $30,000, but if you could reduce your energy cost or your energy use, it will reduce the cost of the system. Uh, and so instead of installing a $30,000 system, maybe you only need a $20,000 system. If you can do some energy efficiency type things. Uh, an example would be heating and cooling your home. That's one of the most expensive things that you have at a, in a residential home. It uses the most kilowatt hours in your home. It's typically cooling your home, heating your home. And, and so looking for ways to conserve that heat, conserve that cool air. That might be what's called air sealing or include, you know, increasing your insulation. It could be uh, inviting a professional in like myself that does like building an analyst and maybe doing blower door testing and finding out where the leaks are, sealing up those leaks. Sometimes these things can be done for under $1,000, and you could save, you know, multiple thousands of dollars on your system when you go to design it. So that's the starting point, is reducing your energy use before you design your solar system. But once you've 
done those, those energy efficiency opportunities, the next thing you do is, again, back to that, let that thing of educate yourself. Just step outside, look at your home, try to figure out which way is south. Look and see if you have access to the sun. The sun's going to shine here in New York. The sun's kind of shining from the south. Uh, you could have a roof or a ground-mounted array could, could also be feasible. And you really just are concerned about the sun from 10 a.m. to maybe, say, 3 p.m., 3 or 4 p.m. You really don't care about the sun hitting that roof at 9 in the morning. You don't care about it at 6 in the afternoon. You want it to be facing south, and, you know, how much room do you really have? And is shading an issue? Are there trees in the way? Can you actually install a system on your property or on your roof? Speaking of your roof, what age is your roof? If your roof is... 25 years old and it has a, a shingle that's warranted for 30 years, you definitely might want to consider replacing that roof before you put a solar system on top of a roof that's already outdated. You wouldn't want to have to put the system on, take the system off, replace the roof, and put the system back on. So knowing the age of your roof is really important. And the next thing that you might want to consider is, you know, what funds do you have available to put towards the project? And so it all comes down to, you know, I'm a homeowner, you know, what, what funds do I actually have? And so you start thinking about, am I going to own the system? Am I going to lease the system? Or am I going to consider maybe getting in with a community solar project? What you've just said, suggestions, are they things that people need uh, to research how to go about it? I mean, there's a lot of information online, and a lot of it maybe is not so accurate. What do you recommend either maybe nonprofit volunteer organizations that people can look at and say, how do I go about assessing all the things I need to know? In New York, we have this wonderful resource. It's called NYSERDA, which is N-Y-S-E-R-D-A, NYSERDA, the New York State Energy Research and Development Authority. If you go to their website, it's called, if you go to NYSERDA and just type in in a search engine, NY Sun, click on solar, you're going to be able to do that type of uh, research to just educate yourself in a non-biased way. Another great resource is the New Yorkers for Clean Power. They're, uh, again, a grassroots organization that's spread across the state doing really good work. They have a resources tab, and you click on solar, and you can learn about community solar if you want to like watch a video and, and learn from some subject matter experts. So that's a great place to go and get information um, before you get started. But then the really next thing you do is you start thinking about what are your resources, you know, financial resources. Can I actually uh, afford to do this? How do I know how much this is going to cost or am I going to lease it or am I going to, you know, join a community solar? So what I always tell my friends and family and students and, and community members, it's a really simple thing, but you just have to go and do it. If you're thinking about owning solar and you're thinking about putting it on your roof, go and get three estimates. Three estimates from a smaller local solar installation company or I like a mid-sized solar installation company. I prefer the small to mid. I'm not a fan of the large solar installation companies, the ones that might be running national ads. Why is that? I want to work with the person that comes and looks at my home and provides me with an estimate. I feel a little more comfortable if they are also the person or the team that's designing my system. And maybe it's the same person that's installing the system. And if I have any problem, it's the same person that's troubleshooting the system. Uh, larger national companies, the salesman or saleswoman is one person. The organization that's doing the quoting is maybe in a completely different state. There might be a, a different team that comes and does the installation. They may even have a, a licensed electrician that comes out to finalize the connection. And if you have troubleshooting issues, it's a completely different team. And so that's a really important thing for the community of New York, my, my local Sullivan County community to understand, try to go with some, someone that's smaller and that has that personal touch. Our listeners span both sides of the river. A good part of our audience is in Pennsylvania. You mentioned several sites to visit. Do you have suggestions for folks who live in Pennsylvania? So I personally live in Pennsylvania and work in New York and Sullivan County. And I'm also a volunteer with Seeds.org group. And they're a great resource 
for going renewable, especially solar. And we have volunteers that will actually come to your home and give you a solar site assessment. So if you just go to seeds.org, it's a great place that you can go to learn more. Every home, every building is a little bit different. And so on the Pennsylvania side, we don't have the, as many incentives as we do on the New York side. And so we all can benefit from a 30% federal tax credit. So if we have a system that costs $10,000, we can, if we pay taxes, uh, write off 30% of the total cost and apply that to our yearly federal tax. And so a $10,000 system, you can write off $3,000. On the New York side, it keeps going and it gets better. New York is really pro Uh, renewable energy. On the New York side, you can write off an additional 25% off your state taxes. So right there, anybody living in the state of New York, you can take 55% of the total cost. So if the system costs $10,000, after federal tax and after New York state tax, you only have to come up with 45% of the total cost. Keep in mind, that's subject to every person's different. I always encourage people to talk to their uh, accountants or get an accountant involved to make sure that you qualify. Never just take that for granted. Make sure you understand what that is before you start going down that path. And today, the Inflation Reduction Act, there are many other things that can be combined with those solar incentives. Today, uh, through the Inflation Reduction Act, The state of New York is working on rebates for covering 50 to 100% of your cost of installing new electric appliances, super-efficient heat pumps, super-efficient water heaters, clothes dryers. By working with a local installer, they may be aware of these other opportunities where you can actually lower your energy cost and get a solar array, uh, maybe through a special solar loan. Before we close, is there anything else you'd like to add to this conversation? Yeah. So when it comes time to really figure out if you can afford that solar array, don't be scared away if you don't have the money to buy it. Maybe you don't want to take a loan out. Maybe you don't have the cash. There are projects out there that are called solar leasing. Guess what? Go get three estimates for that. Go find three companies that will put an array on your roof and give you electricity at a reduced cost. They own the equipment, you just pay a reduced cost. I strongly suggest that you compare and read all the fine print, but companies are out there and they will put solar arrays on your roof. There's also what's called power purchase agreements. Companies will put an array in your yard or on your home and you just buy electric for a fixed rate. Again, read the fine print, make sure you understand everything. And lastly, I live in Pennsylvania. We do not have a strong community solar program. But in the state of New York, there's really good programs around community solar where developers are putting in large arrays and you can buy into that. And so if you have a shaded home or a shaded property, you literally can buy into a solar community solar project that was maybe out in the open. It gets full sun year round and you you can benefit and still get all the same incentives. You can still get that 55% off your investment and benefit from having renewable energy. Thank you so much, Larry, for taking the time to speak with us. Thanks, Rosie. It was was a wonderful talk with you. And thanks to Rosie Starr for that. And a reminder that Rosie and the team from Farm and Country are coming up next at 11. We'll be right back after a short break. This is Radio Chat Skill. I'm Kathy Geary of Radio Catskills Now and Then. The Tiny Desk Contest is back. NPR Music is looking for the next great undiscovered musician. Could it be you? If you're an unsigned musician, enter the contest by sending a video of you playing an original song behind a desk. If you win, you'll play your very own Tiny Desk Concert. Go to WJFFRadio.org for all the official rules. Move Sullivan. Sullivan County's free bus system helps people get around. Whether they're going to work on time Monday through Friday, visiting doctors in Monticello, Liberty, Rock Hill, and Harris, or heading to class at SUNY Sullivan. Move Sullivan helps people shop in downtown Wurzburg or Kaneunga Lake, or takes them to the Coach USA bus station so they can go even farther. Info at MoveSullivan.com or 845-434-4102. 
Move Sullivan, connecting our communities. Paid for by Sullivan County Government. Support for Radio Catskill comes from Jeffersonville Bake Shop, offering breakfast and lunch to go or to stay, and coffee, Wi-Fi, and space for getting work done remotely. JeffersonvilleBakeShop.com From The Schwangunk Journal, serving the towns of Warwasing, Crawford, Mamakating, Rochester, Schwangunk, and everything in between. SchwangunkJournal.com And from listeners like you. It's Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. This afternoon at 4 in Narrowsburg, the Delaware Valley Arts Alliance presents a conversation between artist Robin Almquist, Catskill Mountain Keeper, and Rebecca Kreshkoff of Beyond Plastics. Almquist will be discussing her exhibition, The Space Between You and Me, on view through March 26th. The work addresses themes of climate change, environmental destruction, gun violence, and income inequality. Joining Almquist are Rebecca Kreshkoff, a local environmentalist and member of Beyond Plastics, a grassroots organization dedicated to eliminating the use of single-use plastics, and members of Catskill Mountain Keeper, an environmental nonprofit on a mission to protect our region's forests and wildlands, safeguard air and water, and accelerate the transition to renewable energy. WJFF's Valerie Manzi has a preview. Let's begin with you, Robin. Robin, uh, what was the catalyst for your exhibit? Well, um, oh gosh, where do I start? I, you know, the political environment over the last, let's say, six, seven years has been so polarizing and um, so tumultuous um, that I decided that making art also had to be making a political statement or um, a statement about society in general. And so um, I wanted to choose things that were important to me, like environmental destruction and um, gun violence, things that are two really, really polarizing issues in our society um, and find ways to talk about them visually to create dialogue between people who are on both sides of the issue. Okay. And the, the catalyst for the conversation? Well, I mean, as far as environmental destruction goes, you know, back when I was in the eighth grade, which is now like 30, Five years ago, I did a science project on global warming. And it seems in that time that very little has changed policy wise in our government. I mean, obviously, there's been some progress, but it still seems like big oil, plastics, all of these moneyed, you know, well funded corporations seem to trump any environmental policy that really is going to help save our planet. Okay. And uh, the idea for the conversation with Rebecca? Well, because my work deals with global warming and plastic waste, um, I reached out to Ramsey Adams at Catskill Mountain Keeper to see if um, they might be interested in joining in my artist talk because even though I care about these issues and I am somewhat knowledgeable about these issues. I'm definitely not an expert. And so I thought it might be helpful to be able to answer questions about global warming and about plastic waste with somebody who actually spends, you know, their days working on these things. Okay. So here comes Rebecca. <laughs> Rebecca, how, how, um, are you feeling about having this opportunity? I'm so grateful. It's such a great opportunity. I'm really excited. I've been working on this presentation virtually nonstop for the past seven weeks, and um, I'm told it's dynamite. So really looking forward to the opportunity to share this wealth of knowledge I've pulled together with other people. Okay. And what what is some of that wealth of knowledge? Well, I just want to back up to something Robin said a moment ago. Um you were talking about polarization in our society over various issues. That certainly is true when it comes to guns and when it comes to uh, money and big oil. But it's not true when it comes to plastics. 
everybody agrees we've got a plastic pollution problem. I've met climate change deniers. I've never met a plastics pollution denier. Really? Have you? I I haven't asked. (laughs) (laughs) I think... I think it's pretty broadly recognized yeah. that plastic yeah. is a problem, but we don't make the connection. So, for example, in my drive over here today, it's very windy. Um, a carton blew across the road. Plastic is so ubiquitous, we don't even recognize it anymore. So that carton had plastic in it, and it's going to degrade in the sun and wind and soil. It's going to take years, many years, and the chemicals in it will leach out and affect the environment. Then I passed... Um, a farm with a huge black tarp, again, blowing in the wind that was heaped over something. Tarps are made out of plastic. There is plastic everywhere, and it is all constantly shedding and degrading, breaking off into little microplastics, which further degrade and unleash the chemicals of which they are made. Can you uh, tell us about your involvement with Judith Anks uh, Beyond Plastic, which is um, an organization that is how many years old now? I'm not sure. Um, let's just say several. Several, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Probably about five or six. Yeah. Um, I took her class a couple of years ago and was very inspired and excited about it. There was a group of alumni from the class, I got involved with the steering committee for that group. We put on really continue edu- continuing education talks every month. And um, I also let it be known to Judith and her team that I have some writing skills. So I've actually uh, written some things for and with Judith that have gotten published. We had an article in the Scientific American last May, was it? Um, that was all about how a community group that's been fighting a big petrochemical plant actually got it put on hold. I mean, solidly on hold. The judge agreed with them. Um, this has been going on for years. I don't know if you know, but that region between Baton Rouge and New Orleans is known as Cancer Alley because yes. of, yeah, all the petrochemical facilities, it's really, it's referred to as a sacrifice zone because the powers that be, the big oil, big big oil and big chemical, which are inextricably linked, have just decided, okay, we can we can dump on these people because they're poor, they don't have a voice, they won't resist, they won't fight back, but they're fighting back. God bless them. That's a good thing. Uh, Robin, you mentioned uh, a case in Laredo, Texas. Yeah, so from what I understand, Laredo, Texas banned plastic bags. And the people of Laredo were for this measure. And once they banned plastic bags, the riverfront was immensely cleaner. They could, I mean, and everyone could visibly see what an amazing thing this ban was for their community. And then big oil executives came into town with the backing of the Texas government, basically, and told that told Laredo that they weren't allowed to enact a plastic bag ban. And I just, you know, for me, that's an issue. Like it's an instance where big money and big companies have trumped democracy. The people of this city wanted this ban and yet were not allowed to control their own government and their own laws because of money, basically. And I think That's terrifying. Yes. Several states have bans on bans. I mean, that's crazy, you know, right? (laughs) Totally. Rebecca, I know um, Beyond Plastics is very involved with single-use plastics in particular. Yep. Can you address that a bit? Sure. The reason they're focusing on single-use plastics is that 43% of plastic production today is to make single-use plastics. So disposable water bottles, um, the chopped-up fruit at the supermarket, the plastic bags, etc. Um, that's where nearly half of all the plastic that is made today is going. And it's ingenious because from the company's perspective, there's an infinite market for it because people dispose it of it. It's trash. 
So they just can keep on selling more and more and more. And also the percentage of plastics that actually gets recycled. Very low, uh, pitifully low. The highest it's ever been was 9.5%, but that's back when we were still sending a lot of waste to China uh, and calling it recycled, even though a lot of it actually wasn't. Um, but in 2021, the rate was somewhere between 5 and 6%. Wow. Yeah. So we're, we're, we're not beyond plastics yet, but we're working <laughs> at getting there. Is there anything else either one of you would like to add before we end the interview? I mean, I just hope that raising this issue helps consumers make different choices. You know, maybe if you have the choice between buying something in glass or aluminum instead of plastic. But the thing is, you can't really leave it up to the consumer because I try to avoid plastic in any time I shop and I can't, it's in everything, my clothes, my food, you know, everything. And, um, I mean, even when my daughter goes to a birthday party, she comes home with a bag full of plastic things that she uses for a short time and then ends up in the trash basically. And I just hope that if more people are aware of how truly awful this is for our planet, that, Maybe they'll send a letter to their congressperson or their senator. Maybe we can all help to create this change. Okay. And Rebecca? Yes, it will take a groundswell of people rising up just as it took Earth Day to get the Clean Water Act passed. Uh, so personal choice is great. Create less demand. But we need legislation. We need policy change. And yes, write letters. Support the Break Free from Plastic Pollution Act when it gets reintroduced, uh, there's an approach called EPR that can either be short for effective packaging reduction or extended producer responsibility. But in any event, um, that needs to be a very carefully crafted policy to get businesses to redesign their products to use less plastic to get the toxins out of plastics. Um, that should be a real concern for anyone because – we are poisoning ourselves and the planet. Well, thank you, ladies, for your wonderful insights. And I wish you a successful discussion this afternoon. Thanks so much, Valerie. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. And that artist talk is this afternoon at four with artists Robin Almquist, Catskill Mountain Keeper, and Rebecca Kreshkoff of Beyond Plastics. It's at the Krauss Recital Hall at the Delaware Valley Arts Alliance in Narrowsburg, New York. Capacity is limited, so if you're planning to attend, you're asked to RSVP, you can do that at DelawareValleyArtsAlliance.org. That's all for this edition of Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. Thanks for listening. Radio Catskill supporters include Grizzly Bagels, small batch handmade New York style bagels in Calicoon, New York. Available for pre-order, in-person pickup, or shipping within New York State grizzlybagels.com from the River Reporter newspaper in Narrowsburg riverreporter.com and from listeners like you who donate at wjffradio.org Last weekend, I went to see the British folk rock supergroup The Magpie Art, a very memorable night. So on the next Waggle of the Monkeys here on Radio Catskill with me, Graham Rice, we'll be hearing The Magpie Art, plus other work by the five members of the band. Join me, please, on Sunday afternoon at three. Hi, I'm Mimi Bradley, Radio Catskill's Development Manager. Did you know that you are our largest and most reliable source of funding? It's true, and there are many ways you can support us. Include Radio Catskill in your will. Make a gift of stock. Set up a charitable annuity or trust. Make an IRA charitable distribution. Make a donation in memory or in honor of a loved one. I can give you all the details. Call me on 845-482-4141 or email mimi at wjffradio.org. Farming Country is coming up next. 
A look at the weather for the Catskills in northeast Pennsylvania. Snow this morning will transition to snow showers this afternoon. About an inch of snow expected. High of 27. Tonight, some flurries or snow showers possible. Cloudy, low of 19. And considerable clouds early tomorrow. Some decrease in the clouds later in the day. But blustery with wind gusts up to 20 miles an hour. And high of 42. Mamacating Library opening late at 1130 today due to weather. WJFF Jeffersonville.